Today we're looking at, if you have your Bibles, Psalm 51. For some of you it's a familiar psalm, maybe to others not. You can turn there in the Old Testament to Psalm 51, and we're focusing today on verses 10 through 12, three verses, Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12. It's also written in your bulletin in the uh, insert. You can follow along. Listen as I read God's word. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Well, last week I was back, as you know, but maybe some of you weren't here and um, and maybe some of you are visiting today. And I take a few weeks off in the summer with the family and then immediately some time of renewal with the family. I spend personal time in study and reflection after that before then I return and prepare for our new ministry year. And so I did so in the month of July and here now as we begin this year. Uh, Next week we'll begin into a new focus and series. Uh, But today is kind of so to speak, a Sunday before, uh, kind of a, an opportunity maybe to share something as I see it from the heart. Um, and that's what I like to do today. And that's why I've chosen this particular text. That's why I've chosen this particular focus. Um, today, well, most Sundays, if not every Sunday, I, I seek to bring God's Word to you. I certainly grow and learn from the Word of God as I study, prepare, and then proclaim the good news of the gospel. But today, this is also more of what I need as much too. This is something that I've reflected on in my past several weeks about not just the past few weeks, but even the past year or so, maybe even longer, that I've seen some effects in my own spiritual walk with the Lord. So hopefully you'll be encouraged to hear just how your own pastor struggles. In case you didn't know, I struggle. I struggle a lot in many different ways. But today you're going to hear one particular aspect of struggle, and maybe that's where you are. If not, you can pray for me. If so, you can join with me in the journey as we struggle together and yet receive God's blessing in the midst of it. We have some time that we spent, as I mentioned, away. And you know, we always spend time at a family home we've had since the 1950s, my, my parents. It's a home that my mother's side up in Virginia. And one of the most therapeutic things about being up there, you can ask any of the members of my family, is it's just a place where so many memories ha- are there. You know, granted, you have memories whether you're there or not, but when you go there, all of a sudden, memories start to fire off in your brain about things you've been there because... I've been there since I was a baby, going there regularly. And so now my children are having the opportunity to build some memories in that same place. And for a parent to have your child build memories in a similar situation, it's just very rich. Some of you know what I mean. It's very rewarding. It's very encouraging. And so we're very thankful for that opportunity, as, as long as God has given it to us. But in that time, you know, we're out there and we're it's almost like, you know, the, the cares of the world. Sometimes when you get away like that, they're kind of put aside and you're just able to really enjoy things in a different way. And I really did have an opportunity to do that. I really enjoy spending time, of course, with my family. And we did all kinds of different things during that, that, uh, that period of time. 
But, you know, just days before I reflected on what that time was like, I had felt very differently before that time away. My heart was really struggling in different ways before I actually arrived at that location. And so I, I reflected upon why I felt so differently before I arrived there this summer and then why I felt so differently once I got there. And I reflected and thought about my, my relationship with Christ, about his church and my time away. And you know, I really have come to a place where I've reflected and today, as the title is in called Restoring Our Joy, I really do confess that the joy in my own heart has been something very waning in months. It's been very difficult at times to find that joy that God gives us in Him. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you've been through that kind of seasons, or maybe you're in the midst of that kind of season. But the joy in my own life has definitely seemed to be lessened, diminished, and even at times it seems to be not present. It has. But God's bringing it back. God giving it back piece by piece as he promises. He never left, and his joy was always being offered. But my willingness to receive it and my awareness of its availability was what I was struggling with and really didn't even see it as much. Because when you don't have joy in the Lord, that's kind of a, a core need. When you don't really have joy in who he is and what he's about and what he's trying to do, even in the midst of difficult things that we go through, and everyone in here probably can name something difficult you have going on right now. Everybody, I bet, can. And if you can't think of something right now, just wait. This week, something God will give you as an opportunity. So joy, you know, I've always said it's, it's my firm belief that the elders of the church should be the chief confessors should be the first ones to show where their heart is, and that's certainly a conviction I do have, and I desire even today to share as the psalmist writes this psalm what it actually means in my own heart and what I actually desire for God to be about in my own life. So what is Psalm 51 and who wrote it and why? Maybe you know this, but in case you don't, just a brief quick background, Psalm 51 is written by King David. Written by David, maybe you know that character in the Old Testament, and you heard the story of David's life, so many things in his life we have in the Scriptures, but particularly he's known for his life as it was broken at times, like when he sinned with Bathsheba, when he sinned in causing even her husband to be killed on the field of battle, when he did things that certainly brought dishonor to his God. And as he did those things, finally God brought him to a point of realizing it, and he was confronted by the prophet. And this psalm, David wrote these words after that realization and heart check. He wrote these words, coming before the Lord, open, willing to say, this is where I am. Lord, I need for you to come. Certainly, I'm sure in David's journey, he had come to that point as he wrote this psalm, as he even says, where he had truly lost his joy. For reasons, of course, of his own choosing, but yet he lost it. It was certainly not available in his perception, even though God was still there and still giving it to David. 
This is a song, a psalm, a song of repentance. It's a plea of David's after he was confronted about his sin. We're focusing even more so in these three verses on that statement in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, Lord. You know, as we start into this few verses, should a Christian expect to have joy? What do you think? Should a Christian expect to have joy? Okay, maybe the second question, if you say yes, should a Christian expect for that joy to be maintained? Or just every now and then, yes, I should have joy. But should it be a constant in the life of a believer? It's a question to ask. Because how you answer that question according to what God's Word says will also give you a perspective on what, is your ex- what are your expectations? If you say, well, probably not, well, then you probably won't expect for there to be joy in your life continually. That doesn't mean maybe 24-7 every literal second in the same way that God gives us joy, but it certainly means that there is a joy that is sustainable. You know, how David writes this psalm, it would seem that it is right and proper for a Christian to desire and to have joy in their life. The way he even writes these words in Psalm 51. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Not a life free of pain, of suffering, of hardships, of difficulties. That's not the same as having a life of sustained joy. It's not the same. In fact, it's in the midst of those things that only the joy God can give can be present in the midst of pain, difficulty, trials, and sufferings. You can't have what the world offers as what they call joy in the midst of pain, difficulty, trials, and hardships. It will not happen. But when the Lord gives us his joy, that's a completely different thing. You know, though David doesn't clearly define joy, what is he describing in Psalm 51? Well, David is not talking about a mere elation of emotion. He's not merely talking about just an emotional, sustained response of the heart and mind. That's not, I think, what he's trying to get to. Kind of just expecting just to be happy all the time. Happy, 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 just for the sake of being happy. That's not the same thing as the joy of the Lord. Certainly, happiness can be part of that emotionally, but it's not the core of what the joy of the Lord really is about, as I believe David even speaks to us with it. Joy for the Christian The Lord's joy is a deep abiding. It's a continuous abiding rest. It's a rest of the soul. Joy of the Lord is a resting of the soul in the security of who God is and what he's done for us. It's comfort. It's peace. Knowing with absolute conviction that God is doing what he's promised to do. He's done for us all that we need. It's not about happiness. It's about contentedness. It's about assurance. Assurance that God will not leave us abandoned. That's the joy that David is speaking and requesting of that he has lost because of his own sin. It's about knowing that your eternal future rests on Christ alone and what Jesus has done for you. That's what joy of the Lord is about. It must be based upon that, or else it will be fleeting. 
It will be absent many times. It will not even be present in your understanding or in your sight. It will not exist to you because it will be depending upon other things, circumstances, situations, temporal ups and downs, highs and lows. It will be dependent upon that, not dependent upon the very nature, character, and existence of God himself, which is a constant. He is our constant. Another reason we can be assured that God desires for us as his children to have this joy is because, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, maybe you've forgotten, Jesus himself prayed that you would have it. Remember in the priestly prayer? John chapter 17, verse 13, Jesus prays to his Father, Father, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they, that is his disciples, his, his brothers and sisters, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus prayed for you 2,000 prayed for you today 2,000 years ago, you would have the fullness of his joy. He wanted that for you, and he knew that you would need that. He prays, and he's still interceding today at the right hand of the Father for you, that you would have the fullness measure of his joy. That's what Jesus wants for us, his children. You know, I've identified some in this psalm, but also a couple others, what I would say are joy killers. And then we're going to look at some joy givers. But what are the things that would kill or are killing your joy? And I say these from personal experience today. Things that have killed my joy at times, that seek to devour our joy, consume it, that God so much desires for us to have. The first joy killer is just what David was experiencing, harboring or ignoring sin in our life. That which we kind of either keep to ourselves quietly, put into a dark corner, we know it's there, no one else knows it's there, or we just ignore it and avoid it and try not to see what we know is truly there. Things that we, we do in disobedience to God's commands knowingly or we seek to not fulfill what he, we know he desires for our life, and we put aside the Holy Spirit's call or beckon or direction that he puts upon our heart because he wants the best for us, and we put that aside. We ignore it. David says, Lord, create in me a pure heart. You know, the previous nine verses before verse 10 in chapter 50, Psalm 51 are David confessing his hymns. He's confessing that whole first nine verses to the Lord regarding his sin and his struggle, his disobedience. He confesses it right before the Lord, which tells us this. Joy killer it is, but you cannot, as a child of God, knowingly live, knowingly live in disobedience and have peace with God, have his joy. You can't do it. I've tried before in my life. Maybe you're right now trying to do that. You're trying to live in a way where you... You know it's not that honoring to the Lord, but you're just not willing to let it go and confess it, to give it to the Lord. You know, the spiritual laws of God that he's decreed, they govern, they will never allow for us to live in that duplicit state. It's It's just not what God desires. He may allow it for a period, for a time, but it will not be forever. And as truly being his children, God will not allow for his children to suffer in that way 
to make those choices that hurt ourselves. He will call us back to himself to be close to his side. Just like there are laws of physics, which there are, there are spiritual laws that govern our universe. God has put them in place. And just in the same way, there are spiritual laws that do not change. They are absolute and they are very, very real. Just as sure if you took a watermelon and you went to the top of this building and you dropped it, what would happen? It would fall and completely splatter on the concrete in the front of this building. In the exact same certitude would happen if you seek to break God's laws, his desires for you, his desires for us to follow his truth. You know, I've met a lot of people who believe if they become a Christian, maybe you are there even today as you sit here, you don't really know the Lord and you're here. We're glad you're here. So much glad you're here. But maybe you've even felt this way. Or you know someone here as a follower of Christ. You know a friend of yours, a family member who thinks, if I become a Christian, then life will become one unexciting, very down, discouraging, not fun life because God is a cosmic killjoy. And I certainly believe that's going to happen. So I'm not going to get near this Christianity stuff. A lot of people feel that way as they look at that from a distance. They really feel that or perceive that. But you know, the opposite actually is true. The opposite is true. You know what I mean. It's if we allow our own self-centered hearts, because we all have a self-centered heart, even as believers, we struggle with our heart going towards ourself. But if we allow a self-centered heart, which everyone has, to run unbridled with no regard for God and who he is and what he has said, his truth, to run unbridled against even his own love for us, then what will happen is step by step, our joy will be removed. It will go away. It will be diminished and almost become non-existent. Because God wants us to yield ourselves to him for our joy. And we receive joy when we do that. He, he pours out his joy as we follow him and love him and honor him and worship him with our lives every day. That's how we receive the abundant joy. You know, it's not just harboring or ignoring sin in our life, but also it's when we experience the second joy killer, failures and disappointments in life. Failures or disappointments. And all of us can say, yes, I know what that's like. I've lost my joy because this is just not what I expected. Where my life is right now is not what I signed up for. Anybody feel like that? Okay, I'll raise my hand. In many ways, where I thought I would be at 47 years old is not exactly where I am. There's a lot of great things I didn't expect that have come along the way, but there are things that maybe I thought 15, 20 years ago would look differently. And so along that path of my life, there have been disappointments. There have been those things that I felt like I've tried and failed or certainly have found it disappointing. This is when we put our best effort into something and, or someone and it fails or it just is going 
feel it, it just seems to be going not well. You put everything you into something. You invest in it. You give yourself to it, and it just falls short. It just doesn't get there. Just not quite there. It's when the gap between our, our expectations and the outcome seem insurmountable, that gap. Can you understand what I'm saying? It's when we try, 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 and things still don't work out according to our plan that we had. But we keep trying, and we just seem to, every time you try, you just seem to be taking a step backwards. Ever felt like that? It'll kill your joy. It'll kill the joy that God gives us. David writes this psalm after, we know, a huge failure in his life. A huge failure. I mean, he was the king of Israel. His sin, his failure, his choices, and the things he sought to do not just affected him. They infected an entire nation. Millions of people were affected by his failure. I don't think my failures have affected a million people. They've affected some very important people to me. But David is huge. You can't get much bigger of a failure than David at this point in Psalm 51. You just can't. He knew that in order for his joy to be renewed, though, he would have to have God to renew this steadfast spirit within him. You know, unless we can see that when we fail at something or find ourselves disappointed, unless we can see that when that happens that it's really not about us, even though we've made every effort God's trying to share with us and to lead us about something else, but not, it's not about us anymore. Because if we don't have that understanding and perspective of who God is in the midst of our efforts in this life, then it will kill your joy. It will take it away. It will put it aside, and you will absolutely be joyless. I know what that's like. Joylessness. And it's you can go along for a, a, quite a long period of time in joylessness. Ness. You can. Sometimes, many times, people will not even know you're joyless. You might be the most jovial, happy-go-lucky, outgoing, extroverted, life-of-the-party person. And everybody goes, I love her. He's amazing. And you go home. With no joy. You know what I'm talking about deep in our soul. Failures and disappointments will be a joy killer. The third joy killer is God's unexpected providences. You go, well, what's the difference between those two? Here's the difference. Failures and disappointments, those are when you're trying to make the effort and it just doesn't work out. God's providences, unexpected, are when you're not making any effort at all. In fact, you're doing just fine and something breaks. Something happens that you didn't expect in the providence of God. And it is not what you chose. And it is not what you want. And it is not what you desire. And in fact, sometimes these are even harder because when you make an effort and fail, well, okay, it's on me, right? It's on me. But when you make it, when you make no effort, in fact, you're just fine. Leave me alone. And then something breaks. That's different. Then how do you respond then? 
When someone else does something to you or when in the circumstances of your life something happens to you. And when something happens you can't even blame anyone, though we try, then what? How do we have joy then? It's very different than failures. Life just breaks. It's that phone call from a doctor that says the news you didn't expect. It's understanding from a friend or a family member experiencing that pain so deeply that you can barely stand it. It's the death of a parent, a child, a loved one. It's those providences that are very difficult in a fallen, broken world, marred by Adam's sin, that we must understand. These providences kill, can kill our joy. Why? Because our heart rises up and says, I don't deserve this tragedy. I don't deserve this circumstance. What did I do to deserve this? That's what we do when it happens, don't we? We question God. We shake our fist in his face. We bow up. And yet God reaches his arms down and he loves us. He loves us. When we're in that providence of pain, of struggle. You know, our heart says, I've kept my nose clean. I've gone to church, Lord. I've avoided the big sins in life. Come on, I don't break the big ones. I even give money to charity. I even mowed my neighbor's yard and fed his cat while he was on vacation. I really make an effort, Lord, so I deserve something different than what this is. That's how we feel, if we're honest. I don't deserve such a providence from you. In fact, we, if we're honest, God, we feel God owes us. He, he owes us this. It's the least he could do for what I've tried to do for him. That's how our heart can rise up. I know mine can. Lord, I'm a pastor. I've given my life for your church. I've done everything in the world. The least you could do is give me what I asked for. The least you could do is answer what I want. I'm a pastor. That's how I think. Well... Whatever your heart says. Unexpected providences. But you know, joy is offered to us in the midst of unexpected providence. In fact, you remember the story of Job's life. You remember in Job and all that he went through, he lost everything. What was Job's perspective after everything had been stripped from his life? He had an unexpected providence. What did he say? Do you remember Job chapter 6, verses 8? Here's what Job says to the Lord. Lord, oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut off my life. Job wanted to die. That's what he wanted to do. It was so bad, he didn't want to even breathe another breath. But then in the midst of that pain, what does he say in the next statement? He says, then I would still, at least, at least if I were dead, I would have this consolation. And what's that consolation? It is this, my joy in unrelenting pain that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. He says, at least I'd have one thing left. It'd be the joy that you've given me. 
because I've got nothing else. When you get to the point where all you have is the joy of the Lord, well, then that's what you realize is all you need. That's where he was. That's where God calls us to be. Besides a joy killer of providence, also busyness. You know, busyness can really kill our joy. And we, in our culture, are really good at killing joy with being busy. Busyness. We can become so busy with life's activity that we exhaust ourselves, exhaust ourselves into joylessness. Because we just keep everything going. Everything's spinning. We can put so many demands upon our schedules and lives, there's really no margins left. No margin for any reflection at all. No margin for quiet, for prayer, for listening to God's voice. We just stay so busy. If we do that, I will tell you, if you stay so busy that you have no time to commune with God, then you will find your joy fleeting. It will be very negligible. Besides busyness, the fifth joy killer is a lack of intimacy with God, particularly the Word and in prayer. Look at verse 11 of what David says. He says this, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. What's he saying? Well, some might even say that this verse would seem to be saying that we can lose our salvation. Lord, don't cast your Holy, take your Holy Spirit away from me. That means that it could happen. And in fact, that's not what David is saying. He's not saying we can lose our salvation. And he's not saying that the Holy Spirit can be taken from someone who has received the Holy Spirit for eternal rest and security. That's not what David is seeking to share. Instead, we see in verse 12, look at David's own words in verse 12. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain. What is David's request in verse 12? Notice David's request is not salvation itself that David has lost, but he's lost the joy of it. David hasn't lost his salvation. He says, restore to me the joy of the salvation. He's lost his joy, not the relationship. And that's what he's seeking for the Lord to provide, that joy again. You know, particularly through the Word and through prayer, as a pastor, there's always a danger. One who spends a lot of time in study and preparation is always a danger for the Bible, the Word of God, to become a textbook and not to seek God by His Spirit and just to seek what the text says so I might communicate it effectively. And this summer, again, God really revealed to me just that personal need for myself to recalibrate my own spirit through the Word and through God's presence and in prayer, again, renewing that, that loss, that joy. Such a vital importance to do so. The Word of God and prayer. So, as I'll be sharing even more next week at the Vision Banquet and this year, we are going to spend time focusing again more in the Word of God. All of our covenant groups this year are not reading anything other than we're in the Word. Our groups are in the Word of God this year, and we're going to be spending and focusing those times together. So, let us all take that challenge together. That's the fifth joy killer. But what are the joy givers? Well, what restores our joy? The first one is this, worshiping God. God himself restores our joy. He is the giver of joy. And worshiping him is a source of receiving 
the joy that he gives. Psalm 43 says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. We were, you were created. I was created to worship. We are, people worship. Just watch a Falcons game. People worship, whether it's God or something else, because we're created to worship. So we will give something worth, something, someone, somehow, some way. Every human being does it. But we were created to worship the Creator, the one God. He, and when we do so, we receive His joy. He is our delight. He is our joy. Privately, corporately, worship is vital to restoring joy. It gives us joy, personally or corporately. God alone is the giver of joy. You know, David says in verse 10, Lord, create in me, create in me a pure heart. What's interesting is God alone is the only one that can give us joy. And where does that come from? From him, not from you. In fact, you don't have it. He gives it in whole to you. Create in me a pure heart. The word create there in the Hebrew, if you take the word, it goes all the way back to Genesis. It's the same word in Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth. What's so unique about that? How did God create? Out of nothing, right? And if he created the universe, everything in existence, out of nothing, in the same way David is saying, Lord, just as you created everything from nothing. Create in me your joy. Create in me that because you, in fact, David's asking for just as much of a miracle as it was when God separated light from dark. That's what it is. For God to put joy into you, that's a miracle. For some of you, it's a bigger miracle than others, but it's a miracle that God would put joy there because you don't have it. It comes out of nowhere, out of nothing. God puts it there. So if you're looking, implication, if you're looking anywhere else for it, you won't find it. If you try to find it somewhere else, you won't find it. You won't get it anywhere except from God himself because he creates it. He gives it. Second is The word of God is a joy giver. Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Psalm 119 also says this, Lord, your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. God's very word is a joy giver. And so if we don't spend time with the Lord and his word, we will not find the abundance of his joy. I don't know if you're spending time in the word, in your own heart, in your own life, but if you're not, you probably will not find the abundance of joy in other things. Meaning you won't find it in serving his church. Please still serve, but you won't find it there. You won't find it in seeking to go and evangelize the lost. We are called to do that, but you won't find it there. You won't find it in any other spiritual activity in the same way the Word of God gives us is joy. It's there. We will find it. Are you weak spiritually right now? Are you weak? Are you weak? If you are, maybe it's because you're malnourished, because you're not being fed. You can't be fed from me once a week. 
Can you imagine not eating all week long and coming on Sunday, getting a meal, and then I'll see you next Sunday for your next meal? You would make it. Why would we, would we do that spiritually? We do it all the time. We must be personally seeking to be fed and receiving the joy of the Lord in his word. It's a joy giver. The third joy giver is taking refuge in God. Taking, that's what David was doing. He was taking refuge in God, in God in Psalm 51. Psalm 5, verse 11 says this, But let all who take refuge in you, Lord, be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. What's the psalmist saying in Psalm 5? When life takes a wrong turn, here's the question. Where do you run to? When it takes a left and you're going to go right, where do you run when life takes that wrong turn? Do you look to your work? Do you look to your business? Do you look to the internet? Do you look to food? Do you look to recreations? Do you look to your toys? What do you look to for joy when life turns in a wrong direction? Or do you take refuge in God? Do you take refuge in him. You know, God's there in the big things and the small things. Taking refuge in him when you got a call of great significance and you have to face that in your, in your life. But he's also there in small things. One thing this summer I've been really challenged on is just in my own prayer life is praying for the small things. More conversational prayer or things happening. And so I had, a, I had a pretty busy week preparing for the elder retreat, and I needed to get uh, prepared for everything for this weekend. And so I walked in. Uh, Thursday was going to be my last day in the office because I was on the retreat Friday, Saturday. And so I walk in. First thing you know, I go to the computer, my desktop, type in the password, boop, 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 and all of a sudden it's like nothing really happened. It just kind of went, started slowly moving. And usually it just boots right up and everything, and I'm there on Microsoft Windows, I'm good to go. No, I went, oh, well, and this is, by the way, a fairly newer computer, and it just didn't work, and I was like, hmm, that's not good. I've got a lot to do today, and, uh, and I'm not an IT, I can't computers, I just, no, I can use it, but if it breaks, I'm history, so I'm just sitting there looking at it, and I'm like, hmm, well, then I push the, uh, I, I do a restart, I do a restart, finally, I do a restart, and I'm like, oh, to clear it out, and a restart, same thing, just slow, it's just like somebody just stuck a poor, just, molasses in the computer and just wouldn't work. So uh, I get a phone call from uh, Paul Wagner. We're talking on the phone. I said, hey, Paul, I don't know. My, my computer is down because he's kind of more of an IT guy a little bit, but he understands computers. And, and he said, oh, wow, sorry to hear that. Big help. Thanks, Paul. And, uh, but anyway, after that, after that conversation, I got off the phone. Just kidding, Paul. After I got off the phone, I'm sitting there and uh, I, put, I, had, I had pushed the button again for a hard boot, and all of a sudden it brought up this thing, oh, repair windows, let it run. So I let it run. It ran for like 10 minutes, and then finally it said, cannot repair windows, shut down. So I just, okay, bloop, finish, and it just shut off. So I have no, I can't have a computer. I cannot work. This thought popped in my brain, and I don't often do this, and it's not right, but it said, pray for the computer. Let God fix it. That's what came into my brain. I went, uh, no, I'm not, come on, I'm not going to, because I just, but I just felt convicted to pray for the computer. I, I said, Lord, heal my computer. Fix it. I need to use it. You know what I have to do right now. Please help me. 
I'm just saying. Boom. Bling. Everything worked. I, I, I know. You're saying, okay, the Lord didn't fix his computer. That's ridiculous. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it was just an IT thing. Something happened, and that's fine. But I tell you this, my faith was built. God gave me greater faith. God gave me at least whatever he did, I, I was given greater joy. And I was trusting he would do it. And so, we'll see next week if it works. I don't know when I go back. But, you know, little things, God wants to be there to give us his joy, his peace. Him saying, I will provide for you. Big ways and little ways. Reflecting on what God has done is the fourth joy giver. You know, when we reflect on what God has done, we get his joy. Psalm 92, for you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. When you look back on what God's done, you will gain his joy. Because when you look at what he's done, it reminds you of how powerful he is. It reminds you of who he is. It reminds you of what he can do. And it reminds you that he has done it and he will do it again when you look back at what he has done. It's so important to do. Moses knew it was important, and that's when you read Exodus, you find Moses and other leaders of God doing that for God's people because we must do that with the Lord in our own life. When you find your joy almost gone, remember what God has done for you. You know, so often God's goodness is most clear in the rearview mirror. That's when God's goodness is most clear. When you look in the rearview mirror and you go, oh, he did do that. I forgot. I forgot. Of course you, you did that. We need to be rem reminding each other of what God has done in each other's lives. How he has provided. The Old Testament prophets, their MO was to remind God's people of what he had done for them in generations past. We need to be doing the same thing. The fifth and final joy giver is, of course, the gospel. Believing the good news. The gospel. It must be the heart of receiving the joy of the Lord. Hebrews 12, he reminds us, the author says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, that's Christ, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before Jesus, Jesus went through what he did. And that same joy that was set before him is also given to us and set before us that we, because he is the one that has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, has provided that joy in part now and in fullness, completeness later. We have a full joy now, but it is unlike any other joy on that day. So what, little, what sometimes little joy we think we have now is going to be unmatched that day, the day that he comes, the day that we're with him in glory. What an amazing joy we have that hope for. Jesus knew and he endured the cross so that we would be able to receive that. And that's our hope. That's the good news. We get what we don't deserve. We get joy that we don't deserve. Even when we're grumpy old people, he still says, this is my joy. This is my joy for 